We've uh, taken this season of Easter to go through a series of sermons entitled Encounters with Jesus. And now on our fourth one, it seems to me that there's a subtext to most of these encounters that maybe one of the reasons that we know that Jesus is the Son of God is because he's not the sort of God that any of us would invent. We wouldn't dream up a God like this. We wouldn't dream up Jesus and say, this is the kind of God I want, at least not at first glance. What we want is rainbows and unicorns and sunshine. We want God to bring this type of life into our life. But what we get instead is we get Jesus being a God on a cross. We get a dying God, a crucified God. And so it it's not immediately birthday parties and greeting cards. It's conscription into a cause. It's allegiance to a God who dies. It's eating with the sick and picking up the burdens of others. It's a willingness to be wrong. It's a willingness to be contingent and dependent upon God and upon other people. And it's relating somehow to a God who takes our pain and our suffering seriously but doesn't necessarily fix it immediately in the way that we would want him to. And so becoming a Christian, coming to faith in this Jesus is not the end of our grief. It's not the end of our pain. It's not the end of our suffering. But it is the beginning of having a God who will sit with us in that pain, in that suffering. A God who goes to the cross to absorb pain and suffering and to do something about it eternally and globally. And this is what he does with these sisters as they mourn the loss of their dear brother, Jesus. But there's something even more remarkable going on here because he's enacting a theology, a story, if you will, of a way in which God is at work to give real dignity and real justice to the hurting places in our world and the hurting places in our own lives. That he is in his own suffering, finally eradicating suffering altogether. And he's inviting them, he's inviting us into this story where pain, though it doesn't make sense, has meaning. And it points to something outside of ourselves. And so what we're going to see in this passage is a strange delay on the part of Jesus. And this comes from part of the passage that we didn't read, which I'll share with you in a moment. But Jesus' strange delay, Jesus' amazing claim, and then Jesus' grieving anger. Let's look at Jesus' strange delay, but as we do so, let me pray for us as we enter into this passage. Father, I pray that you would be with us. Most of us here have experienced great loss of some sort, and all of us will. Many of us here this morning are suffering at this moment. We're suffering with sickness. We're suffering with a lack of resources. We're suffering with a lack of employment. Someone near to us is dying and grieving. We're suffering as a church just the instinct to want to help our city, to want to serve our city, and yet feeling so insignificant in that cause. And so, Father, I pray that as we walk through this passage, that you would give dignity to this pain and this suffering. 
Would you comfort us in it? Would you grant it significance? And yet, would you point us further still to the one who is resurrected to eradicate suffering once and for all? Jesus, come and sit with us in this passage and in your teaching by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see, first of all, Jesus' strange delay. And we have a very frustrating passage. I'll move that because I know you guys want to see my profile and I can't see you. So we have a very fascinating, maybe a bit of a frustrating story. And it says in verse 6, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And so you think, well, John, we got to work on your sentence structure here. We need to send you back to college grammar or get you an editor because those two things don't go together. You don't point out that Jesus loves Mary and then Martha and her uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he sticks around two more days. But John's no dummy. He's setting something up for us that somehow in Jesus' delay, rather than his, in Uh, an immediate movement to Bethany, that this is an action of great love for this family. Now, by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus is obviously dead. And Martha says to him, or Mary says to him, Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. So why when Jesus hears that his friend that he loves is ill, does he not make tracks for Judea immediately? And what's even more strange is Jesus' perspective on this delay. In verse 14, which I didn't have Brooke read to you because it's quite a long passage, he says, while en route finally to Bethany, Jesus tells his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus is telling them that wonder of wonders, he's actually happy that he didn't get there in time, that somehow that the death of his dearly loved friend, Lazarus, is going to give his disciples a chance to believe. Now, in the short term, that's very cold comfort to Mary and Martha. You know, Jesus, I would just prefer that you teach your disciples a lesson another way rather than allowing my brother to die. But what in the world is Jesus talking about? In verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So he heard about it two days after the fact. And then he waited two more. So you do the math, that's four days. So by the time he heard about it, Lazarus was already dead. And then he waited two more days. So why the math here? Why, what's John trying to tell us with these numerals? It he's trying to say that he could have gotten there when Lazarus had been dead only for a short time. Now, it was pretty conventional wisdom, a very common Jewish belief that when you died, that the soul hovered over the body for three days, and then it departed. Then the soul took off. So there was, there was dead, dead one to three days, and then there was really, really, really dead four days and afterwards. And so had Jesus left, he would have gotten there two days or three days after death, when he was only sort of dead. But Jesus makes it a point to unearth this kind of conventional wisdom 
that Lazarus is now in the eyes of his sister and all of the Jewish people that have come there to comfort Mary and Martha. He's really, really, really dead. He's not coming up. He's not getting out of the grave. He waits, in other words, until Mary and Martha are in an utterly hopeless situation. His delay puts them in a position where Lazarus wasn't a body put fresh in the tomb, but he's a stinking, rotting corpse. And remember, Jesus did this because he loved them. What is he, where's the love in this? He loves them enough to wake them up to a new reality. Had you been here, Mary says, you could have kept him alive. You see, she has faith in Jesus. There's some faith that's present. If you had been here, rabbi, teacher, friend, you could have kept him alive, but now all hope is lost. He's been dead for four days. What can you do? He, she knows Jesus is special, but four days in, her hope is utterly gone. They don't need now a God who, or a friend, a rabbi who occasionally works miracles. What they need is God. What they need is the one who holds the keys of life and death and heaven and the future and can resurrect Lazarus. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French philosopher and mathematician, and he was also a Christian, and he lived among the wealthy uh, French intelligentsia. And at that time, life was about comfort and pleasure and this growing technology, using these technologies and these new insights into human reason to make life more pleasurable and happy. He lived in a time much like our own. The things that they were obsessed with, we are obsessed with. And what does he say on writing about human life? He says, no matter how fine the rest of the play, the last act is bloody. They throw earth over your head, and it's finished forever. What was he trying to do? He's trying to wake up his friends and colleagues to reality. He's trying to say, no matter how much you have, no matter how hard you strive, At some point, life comes to an end, and it comes to a bloody end. Regardless of our technological prowess and advances, death looms on the horizon for all of us. By allowing Lazarus to be utterly dead, Jesus is giving them a wake-up call. He's waking them up to a whole new reality. Remember what he said to his disciples I am so glad, I'm glad I wasn't there. This will give you a chance to believe. All other avenues of hope have dried up for these two sisters and their family. They're forced into a position of utter dependency. They're forced into a position where God and God only can come to their rescue. None of us, of course, like to think about death. We we want to forestall its inevitability as long as possible. We don't like going to the doctor and finding out, even if it's not a tragic diagnosis, just that there's something wrong with us. Something is not clipping along at the pace it was, that our bodies are decaying and one day we will die. We don't like to think about that. But no matter how noble our lives, no matter how pleasurable, no matter how significant our lives are now, the last act is bloody. And Jesus is forcing us to deal with death. Death. He's pushing us out of our state of denial. He wants to wake us up because 
He loves us. And out of this love, he doesn't simply remind us of the reality of death. He also makes an amazing claim. In verse 21, as Brooke read, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Again, Martha is expressing faith, but it's not entirely focused upon Jesus yet. She's sort of saying, well, we both believe this. We both understand God. And so Jesus makes this amazing claim that Martha doesn't immediately get. Your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Of course, Jesus, this is what we Jews believe. But that's cold comfort to me. My brother just died. I don't want to wait for this last day that may happen millennium, millennia in the future. There were two ages in Jewish thought. There was this current age where things fall apart and where people die, and then there's this coming endless age, the eternal age, the age to come in which God will, will renew all of creation. And the last day in the Scriptures is the dawning of that eternal age, where bodies are renewed, where the earth is renewed. And no doubt all of the mourners at this funeral were using this approach with Martha and Mary. One day, Mary, one day, Martha, God will raise your brother. There will be a resurrection, and God will raise him. It's very true, but it's not the sort of comfort that they were looking for. But what Jesus says is different. It's not stop grieving because one day will Lazarus will rise again. No, what he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is standing in front of me. Martha, it's not simply and not only that we're longing for this last day, this eternal age to begin at some future time, the last day is today. The last day for you and your sister and Lazarus is today because I am the resurrection and the life. I am that last day. I am the dawning of the eternal age. I am the dawning. I am beginning to work things out as they should be and as they were meant to be from the very beginning. The resurrection and the life is standing in front of them. He is bringing the last day into today. It's an invasion of the future into the present. And Jesus says, do you believe this? And she reports again with a very theologically correct statement. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She's still answering theological exam questions. She had a very well-developed Jewish theology, especially about the future, but it was irrelevant to her present. It was irrelevant in terms of comfort. But Jesus is doing something different. He wants to pour out some of this resurrection life onto Lazarus and in the presence of Mary and Martha today, right then. He's actually going to raise Lazarus physically from the tomb as a sign of what resurrection is all about and now is beginning and one day will be in its fullness. She objects in verse 38. Well, by this time, there's a bad odor, 
for he has been there for four days. What did she say earlier? Had you, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. You're the son of God, but don't roll away the stone. You can do anything but this. Do you recognize your own inhibitions in Mary and Martha's? Isn't it easier to believe that God is powerful enough to have prevented whatever difficult, challenging, tragic circumstances that we're experiencing right now, but he's not powerful enough to carry us through them in the midst of them. He's powerful enough to bring about some future resurrection, but not powerful enough to give us the comfort and the presence that we need to sustain us in the situation that he's allowed to happen. In other words, we we grant him the power over all of human history, but not over our own heart. We say, God, you're, you're powerful enough to have created the world and to sustain the world and to bring the world to its conclusion, but I don't trust you with my heart. I really wish you would have prevented this situation. And I'm not saying that that prayer is not valid. Of course we wish that. But God is also wanting to step into our circumstances and have our heart in the midst of it, to grant us comfort in the midst of tragedy and difficulty. But in order to willingly grant him that access, in order to give him our heart, we need to see something else. We need to see a God who is madder at our pain than we are. We need to see a God who cries and weeps over suffering. And so we need to see Jesus' grieving anger. In the beginning, we said that somehow Jesus' delay in coming to Lazarus was motivated by a deep love. But it seems he's allowed his friend to die in order to make a point. It seems a little bit calculated and, and cold and logical. But what we have to encounter now is that while Jesus did allow Lazarus to die, even Mary acknowledges that, that he could have stopped it had he been with them. While he doesn't intervene in the way that we would expect, and certainly not in the way that Mary and Martha would want, he wasn't cold and detached from the situation. And so as I said earlier, maybe this is not the kind of God that we want, but it's not the kind of God that any of us would ever invent. This is one of the greatest arguments against Jesus being mythological, because who would make this up? Who would make up a God who intervenes in this way? We want a God to bring rainbows and unicorns and happiness and sunshine into our life all the time, and that's not what Jesus does. It's not a cold universe where everything happens by chance, nor Is it a religion that's beholden to every human wish and limited to a strictly earthbound perspective? But Jesus sees her weeping, and the Jews who had come to comfort her also weeping. And Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then what's got to be one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, God himself is moved and troubled by their circumstances, by our circumstances. And he says in verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus weeps. At a former church, I served as pastor to college students, and you don't have to deal with death a whole lot when you serve young congregations like that. 
but one of the student's moms died in a tragic car accident and immediately died and left this family of, of three or four siblings without a mom. And so I spent time with him and went over to his house and prayed with him and hugged on him and so forth. But then at the memorial service, the pastor that did the service told the story of a two-year-old who had drowned in a pool. And the pastor shared the, the father's response as sort of an exemplar of faith in this situation. And he said that upon learning that his son, his two-year-old son, had died in a pool, he said, well, there's one more safely home to Jesus. And I thought, that's not faith. That's a father in shock. It's not a time to celebrate. It's a time to mourn and to weep and to even be angry. That's not the way things are supposed to be. Two-year-olds aren't supposed to drown in a pool. And then certainly sons are not made to feel guilty for mourning their mother dying. The only thing to say in that situation, in that moment, there'll be times as times that as the situation evolves and as months pass that you can say other things. But the only thing to say in that situation is to be assured that God is weeping with you, that God is mourning too, and that he sits close and moves towards those who are in pain. We studied Colossians a few years ago, and chapter 1 says this, For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. The creator God, the one who creates the heavens and the earth, the one who creates Lazarus and Mary and Martha, the one who creates you and I, the one who created all things and all people and delights in his creation, that creator God is standing at the tomb and is weeping. He's weeping. The creator himself burst into tears over what has happened to Lazarus. He bursts in the tears. Why? Because he's at a tomb. He's seen creation, the creation that he made and loves, falling to pieces. The people that he loves, the people that he created, are being ravaged by death, and it breaks his heart. But that's not all he does. John says that Jesus was deeply moved. And that's one Greek word. It's very difficult to translate. It's used to describe the snorting of horses. But when applied to people, it means this very guttural reaction, this very visceral anger and animosity. It's an anger that's welling up from the very depth of your being, an almost in inarticulate grunting like that of an animal. It's sort of like what you maybe felt when you heard that 300 Nigerian girls had been kidnapped and taken off into the jungle by this psychopath. You, you can't express the, what you feel in words. You just have this rage almost inside of you. Jesus is not only grieved by death, he weeps, but he's also angered by it. He's outraged by it. In his very gut, this anger wells up inside of Jesus. He's deeply moved at this situation. And his grief and his anger together move him to action. Jesus moves into battle. He moves in as our champion prepared for conflict. 
and he does battle with death, and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus comes. He walks out. But you also have to notice this. What happened when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? In the part that we didn't read, after this happens, the, this is sort of a coming out event for Jesus because he's been followed, he's been stalked in the book of John by the chief priests and the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's this point, these other miracles that he's done along the way made them mad. This makes them incensed. And now they go off after this happens and they have this little confab and they decide So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What John is wanting us to see is that as a direct result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that Jesus was put to death. He's enraged and filled with tears as he confronts death. And how does he do it? By saying, don't take him, take me. Raise him up and let me go to the cross. When he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he's making room for himself in the tomb. In order for Lazarus to live, Jesus had to die. And he does so gladly. He does so willingly. He can offer you and me life. He can offer you and me comfort. He can offer you and me tiny bits of resurrection in the midst of our pain and full and final resurrection because He died and rose again. He can call you and I out of our tombs because he went to the cross and he went to a tomb. There are future aspects to that, of course. There's a a final reckoning, a final resurrection where all things are made new and there's no more pain and no more suffering and the whole earth is remade. But what Jesus is talking about here is that resurrection starts now that he is the resurrection and the life now for Mary and Martha. That's Jesus' point with Martha. Martha says, yes, I know my brother will be resurrected sometime in this distant future. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a future possibility, but it is a present certainty because he is God who has taken on flesh and says so. And what Jesus is saying is wherever Jesus is presently, life is there necessarily. Wherever Jesus is presently, resurrection is there certainly and necessarily. Wherever he is, cold cold hearts begin to warm. That's a form of resurrection. You are becoming more human. You are becoming more in love with Jesus. That is a small sign of resurrection now. The future is happening in the present. When greediness turns to giving, when hard-heartedness turns to forgiveness, when moral performers and great sinners come to the table together and eat of the Lord's Supper together, that is resurrection life. That is flags of resurrection that are being planted in the future, that give us hope for, planted in the present, that give us hope for the future. When a church has unity, when a church becomes a safe place for outsiders, a safe place for doubters, a safe place for sinners, 
That's resurrection life. That's, Jesus. That's resurrection because Jesus is present in those things. And his resurrection, his I am the life is present there. Whenever life springs forth, wherever death should be expected, that's because Jesus is there. That's resurrection. Is there still mystery to pain? Are there still many questions that are valid to ask about why me, why now, why this, why them? Of course. And God invites those questions. When suffering comes, of course, but there is an enduring mystery to the why and the what and the when in this current age. But when it comes, we know that God experiences our pain too, that he experiences pain beyond what we can imagine on behalf of us. We know that God too experiences our loss and that his love towards us cost us cost him his son. And so I invite you now, as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, would you take hold of that love? Take hold of a God who recognizes, who gives dignity to your pain and promises to sit with you in it, in the person of his son, and to fully and finally, in the future, eradicate it forever. That's the gospel story. That's what our hope is. That's what we're about to revisit and reenact as we come to the table. Let's pray. Lord God, so often these promises seem so far off. We want help now. We want our circumstances to change. We want the pain to stop. We want the things that are plaguing us to go away. And Lord, I pray that you would honor those prayers and that you would do just that for people to find jobs, for people to find relationships that are healing, for people to find churches that share the gospel with them and bring them into communion with you and and others, for people to be comforted in their sickness and for sickness to go away. But Lord, we pray that in the midst of this broken world where nothing goes as perfectly as we would hope and and want it to, to go, that you would nonetheless be present, that we would have the, the nevertheless of the gospel and that we would sit in that as you sit with us. And Lord, I pray that you would make these things happen because you are a God who is in his very nature loving and gracious and merciful. And we pray in your son's name. Amen.